Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 242. Letting go is so, so hard. This week, we're discussing the broader themes and character development of series 10 of Doctor Who and season 7 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and wrapping up our discussion of both shows. As always, we suggest you watch the series before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Like that, I changed it to series instead of episodes. <laughs> Good catch. Because uh, we're there. Good on-the-fly editing. We are there. Well, <laughs> I mean, yes, I am. I am very good that way. But, uh, no, I mean, we're, we're done. Like, that's yeah. it. Goodbye. We're leaving, like, Bilbo at the end, at yeah. the beginning of the, of the Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. Almost, like, exactly five years. I know. Almost to the day, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say it was, like, June 3rd, and here it is where this is June 4th. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just saying that since it like, since it posted anyway, so there will be a little delay for production, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. close enough. Indeed. So, well, we're done with that. I guess we can just say goodbye and no. Um, we probably have a few shortest, other words to say. Shortest podcast ever. Um. So, with uh, with the end of an era, we so we're kind of doing dual service for both of these uh, shows, um, talking about the last or at least the most recent season for Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, not the last because there will be more, but the last mm-hmm. of the Capaldi era, and so talking um, about the season, but also about sort of. The era and what can we take away from uh, the the twelfth Doctor? Mm-hmm. Um, I like I pause there. I'm like, is that the right number? But it is. Um, yes, it is. And and just sort of uh, yeah, talk through some of these things. So um, you had maybe a few. Um, Production notes, awards type things to talk through, I believe. Yeah, there there isn't much actually because um, <laughs> I think I maybe not surprising. This will be short too. <laughs> um, yeah, and maybe not shocking. Um, well, I and I so a certain a number of things I feel like I I highlighted as the episode sort of came up. So there's you know so that's one thing. Um, in general, the Capaldi era, more so than the Smith and Tennant and, uh, Eccleston ones before him, seems less decorated in general. Um, now I, I haven't gone through and counted the, the number of nominations for things, so I can't absolutely say that. Um, and I feel like that's true of all of Capaldi's seasons, not just this most recent one. Um, so it's a, you know, as it, it's still a very popular and critically acclaimed show in general, I think, 
Um, but it's not quite the, you know, at the peak cultural impact that maybe it had when, you know, Smith or Tennant were in the role. Um, and so that might have something to do with it just being a little bit less of a critical darling when it comes to like the award season and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but one thing that it was series 10 was singled out for, um, as a whole was, uh, I don't know this organization, but apparently there's, um, something called the pink news awards, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> which I'm not, I, maybe I've just never heard of it. I'm not saying it's unknown, but anyway, um, uh, they awarded this season, uh, their ally award. So it was, you know, an award specifically to do with like contributions to LGBT rights. So, um, you know, I think obviously Bill and, uh, Pearl Mackey were sort of singled out as contributing something special as, you know, the first companion to really embrace an LGBT character as like a full-time companion, not just, you know, I think it's maybe a little easier to do it when it's Jack or River or someone who can kind of come and go from the show and, you know, isn't the sort of, you know, the hero, the one that the kids are really supposed to like look up to and identify with or whatever. Like there's something different about Bill being um, in that community um, that makes her a little bit special. So, um, mm. so yeah, they gave Dr. Who their ally award this year, which Pearl Mackey accepted. So, um, and everything else I think is still even kind of pending. Like we haven't had the Hugo awards yet. So we won't know until that happens, whether, uh, I think it's twice upon a time that's nominated, whether that'll have any luck this year, but Right. Cool. So yeah, I mean, that's it in terms of awards. Now, transitioning into the episode discussion. Yeah. My impression from the like fan community, so not necessarily the critics or the scholars or the bloggers of the world, but like. You sure. Know, the unwashed masses of Twitter. <laughs> right. Right. Of, of which of which I am a, a member. There's <laughs> um, well even if I do blog occasionally, like I'm also like not putting down and, people who are the casual fan not, who you not know, to say anything of um, your washing habits, but yeah. No, no. Um my my impression is that the consensus is that this was very well received this season. Um, like, you know, for people as there always are, who had been frustrated with the way things had been going for a while, you know, uh, maybe certain people never latched onto Capaldi. Maybe certain people never really appreciated Clara that much. Maybe certain people are wishing that Moffat would have left like years ago <laughs> like mm -hmm. there are people like that like that this season was more of a breath of fresh air and a kind of return to what they wanted from the show so you know you see things like 
the it just being a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun, a little bit less sort of twisty and you know arc heavy. Um, hmm. You know, people really responded to Bill. People really responded to the way that Capaldi changed, you know, his approach to the character and how the writing changed to sort of make his characterization like a little bit softer and um, and a little bit more fun. Um, and yet, as we're going through, we had a tough time singling out particular episodes for praise. Um, yeah. So I guess I kind of open the floor with that. Like, are there any classics this season? Does that matter? Do we, here's a question. Do you need to have strong standalone classic episodes for the overall impression of a season to be really good? Mm. Um, or does that kind of ding it somewhat? Um, and then I guess we can also talk about which of the episodes that we chose to uh, single out as the ones that we liked more than the others. Right. Yeah. And maybe cause like your question about, do we need like single episodes that are really good um, to give an overall impression of a good season? Cause I, I, I feel like that's often a criticism of Buffy. And I know we'll get mm -hmm. to Buffy later, but like, there are people like there's like, like the general consensus. Maybe not everyone thinks this, but like by and large, if you ask a Buffy fan like what's the best season, you know, probably like eight and a half times out of ten, they'll say season three, because it's like mm -hmm. consistently good episodes and like a strong seasonal arc. And a, you know, memorable mm -hmm. ending and, like, all of that. Um, but I also feel like if you ask people what their favorite episodes are, a lot of those episodes come from other seasons, later seasons, mm -hmm. typically. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll have a chance to talk about, maybe at least mention some of our favorite episodes. And I've, I've not been secret about the fact that my favorite episode is The Body. And so... You know, there's, um, I, I, I feel like that's also generally true, but like people tend to, um, not, uh, not like those seasons because they feel they are more uneven. And so, so I guess the question on the table is like, like if Buffy season three, like everyone feels like, for them, by and large, the episodes are all really strong, and so it's really even, but it's, like, evenly good. Does, like, mm -hmm. evenly mediocre, like, apply the same way? <laughs> or or would it be better to have, right. like, an uneven season where you have some really good and some that are really not good? Because right. then, like, at least the good ones are more memorable and people will, like discuss and maybe fight for their favorite episodes but mm -hmm. um a season that's just sort of like tepid the whole way through it's it's right. even but not like in a good way <laughs> right because i i do feel like i hadn't thought about it in that way but i do feel like that kind of is what this season is it's like like there's no really 
bad episodes, but there's no really good ones either. And like I mm-hmm. I don't know if that's good or not. Like I like at least at yeah. least they didn't make any really bad episodes. Um and like even right. the ones where right. like I feel like you get either two things, like either like I mean, at this point, like, the production of Doctor Who is at a certain level. But, like, there's some that are just clearly have more thought and effort and design put into than others. So so an episode mm-hmm. like Oxygen, you know, mm-hmm. is obviously very, you know, well-designed and, and sort of well-produced uh, and all of that. But, like, mm-hmm. we've talked like that there's maybe some major you know plot issues with it or like or even like philosophical issues with like how they talk about capitalism and and stuff like there that um i in particular picked out Mm -hmm. uh so yeah i don't know like i i guess i'm i'm sort of fumbling a little bit there but i like that that's sort of the question that i had because like like when you ask, like, is do we need like an episode that's memorable to make the season memorable? I feel like again, that's what people often criticize Buffy for. But like, they don't like. There's also not like I don't I don't feel like anyone says of any Buffy season that it was even but mediocre the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's usually either no, it like just didn't hold up at all, or it it did and it was really good or well there were some that were great but others that were terrible and and right. so there's no right. like equivalent season there um well and what i feel like i mean this is more true of buffy than doctor who just in general but in particular with this series of doctor who that we're talking about i feel like what every episode or what every season of buffy has um i think nobody would argue this point is um clear defined like arcs and themes like you can say i mean you might you might dislike a particular season but we can all probably agree like what was the season about um like at the end of the day like you can say like here's who the big bad was and his metaphoric symbolism touched on these core themes that um, affected the characters in this particular way as they were entering the stage of their life or whatever. Um, Like you could boil every season down to that. And um, Mm. I mean, to a certain extent, I don't know that any season of Doctor Who really ever approaches it like that. Um, So maybe this is an unfair criticism, but I feel like more so than usual, series 10 lacks that kind of, like arc pulling it through yeah um like i think there have been ones in the past even if they were looser where like you know donna and clara and like most of the companions before had like a clear sort of journey um Mm. you know of like a sort of beginning middle and end of where they were headed and some more, some less, but the episodes would either reflect that journey in some way or would draw certain things out of them that was kind of relevant to that. Um, And I feel like as much as I like 
Bill and Pearl Mackey. Like, I like the, the personality of the character, and I like her performance, but I never really felt like I totally understood what was the core of Bill's story. Mm. Um, yeah. And, like, so I feel like, I guess the answer to the question, can it be a good, a good season without classics? I feel like it can if there's something that's sort of keeping the whole thing holding together. Um like, you know, maybe you could have a year full of, like, that's, that's the difference maybe between, you know, like you're saying Buffy season three and like what we just discussed about Angel season four. Right. Like, like Buffy season three, maybe it isn't, maybe it doesn't contain the highs of the other ones, but it has a coherent very strong story that it's telling. And I feel like that's what people are responding to. Whereas lacking that angel season four and maybe Dr. Who series 10 are more random um, and kind of, they're either not about anything or they're about too many things that aren't quite fitting together the way that they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I, I think the disappointing aspect of that for me is that you have the potential makings of a seasonal arc. Like, you have the hints of an arc, or, like, the mm. points from which an arc could be made, if you're thinking, like, geometrically speaking. Like, mm -hmm. you have these different points of, like, the vault, which, like, we get this sort of lead-up to in like several episodes and the Missy stuff, but then it, it never quite reaches the level of like an actual arc. Right. It's just like, right. There's this thing that they keep like alluding to and referring to, you know, at the end of each episode for like the first, whatever, four episodes or something. And then you get like, Oh, Missy's coming out and playing or whatever. But like, I don't know. It just never kind of rises to that level of an actual like story arc. It's, they're just sort of like mm -hmm. little plot details that don't amount to much more than anything. Um, right. Or like to pick another example, you've got like, what's her name? Heather, who like mm -hmm. get, you know, becomes empuddled. Uh, I don't know what the proper term mm -hmm. is at, at like in the first episode and then like it's gone a long time and then comes back in the last episode. And it's like, well, you could have done maybe just a little bit more to that. Like, yeah, like maybe there were points where she was trying to contact Bill and like maybe that, you know, affected how Bill saw her adventures and you know, mm -hmm. other things going on. But then it's like, no, nah, Bill just kind of forgets about her and like has this date with this other lady and like, you know, goes on like this other stuff, which is, which is all fine. Like, I mean, okay. The girl you like, I mean, it's not like they ever even really went on a date or anything. Like, it's just like this sort of random, mm -hmm. random crush you had, you know, became a alien creature. Okay. Well, that's fine. That sucks. But 
I'll right. move on with my life. She moved on, but, fair enough. Yeah. But but then like she comes back and like suddenly you're going to be like celestial soulmates together, and it's like mm-hmm. well they're like you could have just done a little more with that to mm-hmm. build it into something you know beyond two sort of discrete points in you know Bill's life you know one of which is sort of inconsequential and the other of which is like hugely consequential <laughs> yeah um there there's just no like development or build up of that and i think that you know i i, I hadn't thought about this till you sort of brought this up so i'm sort of you know saying words and hoping that like coherent things come out of them you know out of my mouth but um i i i do think that like there's even even where there wasn't like seasonal arcs before i feel like there were seasonal themes at least and like Mm -hmm. more more stories more like multiple story arcs at least where you could at least hang your head on hang your hat on something a little more prominent than you know just like oh this Mm -hmm. one character disappeared in episode one and then comes back to say bill in episode 12 or 10 or whatever Mm -hmm. and that's kind of it Um, yeah right I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's probably other ways to do that, but I'm kind of realizing a pattern that I feel like whenever the show or the companion become too divorced from any sort of home domestic life, um, I feel like those are the seasons where that tends to happen, where things become a little bit too untethered. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like you need to like touch back in with reality a little bit. Like, and that doesn't, maybe it gets a bit repetitive where like, it's always like the female companion who like has a kind of, you know, boyfriend back on earth or, you know, or has, if it was Davies, it would have been her mother or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I, you could probably be more creative about different ways to do something like that, but like um, the seasons that I'm thinking of that are the most sort of lacking in focus are the ones where there isn't that kind of connector cable back to Earth for some reason or other. Um you know, and maybe Heather or it could have been a way to do that with Bill. Like, have her have another relationship apart from the Doctor and Nardole. Um, you know, other than, like, the brief glimpse we get of the girl that she dates and, you know, and her foster mother. Like, maybe developing those characters a bit more or finding a way to sort of tether her back to the Earth would have been a little... I just feel like it stabilizes things a bit. Sure. But. Yeah. Which is a, which is an interesting thought if um, the rumor is true of, I don't know that it's a rumor, the speculation that um, what if Chibnall goes for the, um, you know, third doctor scenario of uh, the doctor being stuck on earth 
um, like that would be quite a shift to kind of take away the kind of TARDIS element and just say, you know, we're going to do sort of earthbound stories for a while. Um, but that's a, that's a question for another podcast. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the ones we wanted to single out a little bit more than others. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, so like having said all that, like I went ahead and picked like the, the one multi episode arc that this season does have between world enough in time and the doctor falls. I mean, maybe cause I guess there are others that do sort of lead into other to each other. Right. Or no. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not like there's no continuity or anything, but, um, but like, this is like, you know, we're like stories continuing, but this is sort of like the clearest in my mind anyway, of like the, I mean, and they're still very different. Like, it's not, it's not like, you know, uh, the unearthly child and Dr. Dances, you know, like, no, is that right? Is that the name of Mm -hmm. the, yeah. Uh, no, um, shoot. I'm blanking on the title. Uh, The Empty Child. uh, Yeah, there you go. Um, the, where, like, you literally, like, pick up where you left off. Like, there is still a gap, and they are kind of discrete stories, but there is a sense of, like, one, you know going into the other. Um, and obviously like they're, they're on the same like big ship and going from like level to level, even though they're like different habitats on each level or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's a big part of why I like the episode is because it has a little more time to sort of develop a story and, I'm glad they do that for when, you know, it's sort of Bill's end. (laughs) Um, I mean, sure, she comes back in, uh, you know, twice upon a time uh, in a way. But at least um, at least they like put effort into like that story of like, her getting cut off from the doctor and sort of becoming the um, unwitting friend of like the master and, you know, her transformation into a Cyberman and um, all of that kind of thing. I think obviously other stuff happens there, but that's like sort of the central, like, Mm -hmm. uh, the central thing is, is, you know, her getting separated and then like the others trying to get to her. And then like in the doctor falls, her having to deal with her newfound inhumanity. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, I mean, other things happen too. And you've got like stuff with the doctor and, and Missy and the master and um, whatever. But like, I feel like that, like the the core arc of those two stories is is Bill and her mm-hmm. her getting cut off and being lost to the doctor in in more ways yeah. than one. 
Um, yeah. So that's kind of why I like it. Yeah. Well, and it occurs to me that there is an arc, a mini arc in the middle of the season with the kind of doctor blindness arc mm. for over three episodes. But like the finale is so much better executed. Just like, I, I feel like if we're talking about, you know, consequences and, you know, a character undergoing like a major physical trauma and that having an impact on the story and the characters and all that, like what happens to Bill in this episode is so much yeah. stronger than what they tried to do, you know, maybe it was a bold experiment, but they didn't really successfully pull off. Well, um, and I, that kind of, you know, that arc in the middle of the season there. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. Like there, there's a, there's sort of a lack of like impact to the character due to the blindness. It's like, he just happens to be blind for those three episodes. Like it doesn't seem to actually like change anything or, or whatever. And there's like, I mean, there's like a few little plot details that like, like, Oh, now he's like wearing these glasses and like the people don't know that he's blind and stuff. And so that makes for some like funny or awkward moments or whatever. But like, there's no real like character depth or insight like revealed due to like Mm -hmm. the blindness. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Whereas that's not true with Bill, I think. Um, mm. You know, yeah. when, when these things happen to her in the finale, like, it's clear that that's, like, an irrevocable change. And I think we learn a lot more about her character than we knew before that as a consequence. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I never kind of made the connection before talking about this of like, you know, the two of them having like major sort of, you know, injuries happening. But, um, but I think that the Bill's story in the finale is the much better executed one. Um, so kind of going the other way, uh, I sort of agree with you that the finale is the clear, you know, kind of outlier um, among the group, but um, kind of going to the next tier of uh, episodes that I like, I chose Thin Ice. um, Sort of because it also gets us to the front end of the season, so the balance works. Um, But I do like this episode. And just like, as not necessarily one that has or needs to have a connecting like arc connection to anything else. Um, it of the kind of just purely standalone episodes, I feel like in my opinion, this is the strongest of the bunch. Um, Mm. and even though it's like not super arc heavy, like again, it does have those, slightly more weighty character moments, which I think help make it a little bit more interesting and memorable um, of, you know, Bill starting to sort of 
learn a little bit more about the doctor's character and question him and push back against him and not just sort of take things for granted that he says, um, you know, and putting, I think for the first time having, you know, a, you know, black main companion who you're able to put into a particular sort of historical situation in an interesting way. So it's sort of groundbreaking in that way, I think. Um, they could have done that with Martha, but they never really got there. Um, so it's, you know, I think that helps set it apart a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, like, even with, like, the Shakespeare episode, right? Like, like it's... Right, that's the clear contrast. Yeah. Well, but also it's, like, they sort of play it off as, like, oh, the Dark Lady. Like, she's exotic right. and, and, you know, interesting, not, like what might actually be a, you know, racial issue or, you know, whatever in, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. that time period. Right. Like Shakespeare might have had like, you know, Shakespeare or his contemporaries might've had issues with her. Like mm -hmm. that doesn't ever really, there's no suggestion of that in that episode. Um, you know, to be fair, there's some of it in, uh, human nature. So I'll kind of give it that where, um, you know, when they go back to sort of World War One era and she's the maid, there are some, like, racial overtones to that episode. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this one challenge, like, it goes into them a little bit more deliberately. And, um, you know, it's 10 years later. It's just like a slightly different time, I think. People are more, like, if you leave that stuff out, um, it's more noticeable now um, to kind of take Bill back to a particular time and not kind of address the, the obvious. Right. You know, it's just a more necessary thing. So, um, so I think that Thin Ice does a pretty good job of that. Nice. So, I guess, um, broad, like, maybe we can broaden it out now to, like, just talk about, like, the Caldera as a whole. Um, and, like, one of the things that I wanted to talk through was kind of the, the ways in which, um, well, well, one sort of the ways in which he evolves over, I, I guess, you know, after, after just talking about how there's not much story arc here um, mm -hmm. in this, at least in this latest season, um, what, if any, sort of character arc uh, Capaldi's Doctor has? And then mm -hmm. also, like, comparing comparing him to like previous doctors from a, from a standpoint of like, so you get like, well, well you kind of put it in um, good terms of like the doctor who regrets with Eccleston and the doctor who forgets with, um, I, I get, is that, is that? Um, oh, well that referred to Tennant and Smith, but I think you could lump, 
Eccleston and Tennant, like the Davies doctors, into the sort of regrets okay. category. Um, and then, you know, with Matt Smith, before we were recording, you were talking about his his kind of, like, non-engagement with the past being a function of his sort of childlikeness. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he's the doctor who forgets, there's also, like, you know, you could see it as kind of innocent. And, you know, he's sort of childish, and he doesn't think about these sorts of... He doesn't, like, brood around he's, and, you know... He's definitely more of like a in the moment kind of doctor than right. than right. The, than right. his predecessors. Right, but towards the end of his tenure I feel like that does shift and starts to get called out as more of a denial of like he's maybe overcompensating and and acting a bit more carefree when is he, you know, is it really that he's that carefree or is it that he's sort of actively repressing right. some of these is there, issues that he never really got over. Is there a, um, like, a fake it till you make it sort of quality, maybe? Right, right, uh, right. To some of his... Right. Yeah. Which I always loved that from Day of the Doctor. Those, you know, that's a very kind of clear characterization. So I guess the question for me, then, is what what does that make Capaldi? Now, we're not going to come up with, like, a good rhyming, you know, triptych, I don't think. But, um, you know, like, if we've been through the regret and the forget stage, what, how would we characterize the stage that Capaldi represents? And then kind of what does that mean going forward? Like, what do we expect, if anything, from, you know, the next Doctor... Um, in terms of, like, the relationship to the past. Mm-hmm. I guess the past of the show, the past mistakes, the past losses, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, and I, I think what sort of struck a chord with me for Capaldi is that to the extent we do get sort of arcs and themes throughout, you know, from season to season and, and across seasons, um there is it, it there is a sense of facing the past but not in the sort of way not in sort of the regretful way of the early new who doctors um the davies mm-hmm. doctors because you get like like early in capaldi's tenure um you get sort of like the whole concept of his face being similar to one that he saw in the past and sort of wondering why Mm -hmm. that is. And so I think it's almost like it's not that he regrets because he kind of did forget, right? Like there is kind Mm -hmm. of a sense in which he did forget, or at least if, if not entirely forgot, because like there's, you know, the implication being that, like, he chose the face for some reason. He just doesn't happen mm-hmm. to know what the reason was. And so, at some level, maybe it's subconscious, but at some level, he does remember, but maybe is, like, coming to grips with the length of, you know, life that he's lived and and 
you know, maybe it's more about, um, you know, not, not that he's like forgetting completely, but like, it's just like taking too much toll to try to remember all of the bad things that have happened. And so like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like we probably have to do some heavy retconning to get to where I'm going to go. But sure. I feel like if if we wanted to try, if, if it's necessary and we wanted to try to, like, explain the changes that he goes through from, mm-hmm. like, Capaldi's first season to his last, that mm-hmm. maybe there is an aspect of, like, embracing the uh, forgetfulness a little bit. And so it's not, it's not quite, it's not quite the, like if, if, if the thesis on the table is that Matt Smith seems very happy and present and childish and go lucky and all of that. But then like, we learn that maybe he isn't quite that way the whole time. Mm-hmm. Then maybe mm-hmm. with Capaldi, it is more like, not so, not so much a childish thing, but more like the sort of I want to say like the the like early <laughs> retirement thing of like <laughs> of like embracing like by that point in your life you just know who you are, you know you've mm-hmm. done all the work and you kind of know what it is and that's you know what it is that you want. I mean and like. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, you kind of say F it to, like, the rest of the world. Like, you're just going to do what you like to do. And whether that's, like, traveling or, you know, doing whatever. Like, like I feel like that's not where he starts. But but kind of, I think that's where, by Series 10, like, he he kind of gets to. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, there's, like, the aspect of, like, the vault and, like, Missy and you know, helping her and stuff. And so I like, maybe that's not a perfect metaphor and maybe there's other things we need to do, but just from Mm -hmm. a personality of like the, the not quite understanding why he chose what he did and there, there being some kind of like link to the past, but then also the, the aspect of maybe learning to let go, you know, what that link is. Um, Mm-hmm. of course you know wrapped into that is the letting go of clara um and being sort of right. forced to not allow but like to you know understand that he can't stop her that um mm-hmm. and and i think we see a similar echo of that in his own regeneration where he does attempt to force and and for a little while succeeds in in forcing himself to stop but then like ultimately in you know Mm -hmm. uh twice upon a time you know comes to embrace it after like again facing sort of his past and 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 actually coming to grips with it not not facing it and being ashamed and not like pretending it doesn't exist but actually like looking back and and examining why do I have this face and examining like 
why is there this entire episode of like my first incarnation that I don't even remember happened? Um, and those sorts of things. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard even Capaldi himself has referred to joking about like this doctor's like kind of style and like kind of slightly geezer rock, like, you know, moments as like the midlife crisis. But I feel like it's not so much midlife crisis as like midlife confidence. Like he's not in the identity crisis where he's desperately trying to, you know, make himself younger. Um, It's more that like you're describing the confidence that comes with being older and knowing who you are. Um, and having been through those angstier, younger phases, and then just kind of deciding, like, he is going to be the way he is. And that means, you know, he's abrasive at times, but it also means that if he kind of wants to be goofy and silly and play guitar, like, that's, like, what he's going to do, and it's totally fine. Um, and I feel like that kind of does go along with like the the characterization the presentation of the character um and maybe it's like how to the wisdom again of age of like how to remember the parts of the past that are worth remembering and useful and teachable and letting go of the things that you don't need anymore um you know mm-hmm like, I feel like maybe that's more the relationship is neither fully regretting or forgetting, um, remembering, but not dwelling. Mm. Like he's going to remember, you know, he, like he gets his memories back of, you know, the time war and eventually of Clara and like these significant gaps in his memory that he didn't have. But he's not necessarily going to carry the burden of those things into the future. Um, sure. You know, or, you know, he, he can remember the lesson of what his face represented. But th- that becomes about the positive message that it sends and not about like, oh, let's like, here's all the people and that I failed to save at Pompeii, you know, Um Rather than kind of dwell on what he can't change, the the takeaway is about, all right, what did he learn from that? What does this face sort of remind him of going forward? Sure. So does he have an arc then? Because right now... Um, TARDIS Eruditorum, which is a very good blog about Doctor Who, um, is going through the Capaldi era, and they're, you know, about to finish up uh, Series 8. And it's been suggested that Capaldi's performance is kept enough at, like, an emotional remove from the audience. Like, not that he's not likable or emotional but that you don't really always know what he's thinking Mm -hmm. whereas like with the previous three in new who 
you had a, you had more of a sense of like what their interiority was. Um, like you could say across a season or, you know, an era of episodes, like how, you know, Tennant's doctor sort of shifted from episode to episode. Um, and Capaldi's a little harder to pin down that way. So um, it's been suggested that um, is he really a doctor without a character arc or is he not even really designed to have a character arc? Um, yeah. And I guess given what we just said, do we agree with that? Um, and is that satisfying? Does it matter? You know, like, I don't know. Um, well, so I think it's an interesting it, in this age of prestige TV, to me, the idea of a main character without an arc sounds like a very intriguing thing. But like, I wonder if they really, if they've really done, if if that makes it a little neater than it really is. I mean, um, <laughs> well, to blatantly cryptic here. I would say, to the extent that he has any arc, it's accidental. <laughs> sure. Which, which does, I mean, which, okay, fine, then, okay, if, if I say that he does have some kind of arc. Like, I, I think we just talked through enough, although I feel like I was doing some acrobatics, which my body doesn't, isn't capable of actually doing in order to get to that place. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe it's not entire, like maybe even, you know, further analysis will be like, no, that's all just kind of BS. I, I do. I think, I think he has a theme and possibly even variations mm -hmm. on a theme. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if it amounts to a, like a character arc in sort of the way that we typically understand that mm -hmm. word mm -hmm. unless unless you count the fact I see I don't know because like if if the 12th doctor can be characterized as a doctor who faces the past without regret and like like truly faces it in an attempt to understand both it and himself then I do think that the release and and allowing himself to regenerate can be viewed as like growth, which might then constitute mm -hmm. an arc. Mm -hmm. It's I, I mean, mm -hmm. especially given like. Like, especially if we take the violence with which the regeneration occurs as a metaphor for how, like, pent up he was. Like, you know, how, mm -hmm. how repressed he allowed, like, you know, maybe, maybe some of that lack of, you know, emotional, you know, the more stoic side of the doctor that Capaldi portrays becomes a, you know, like, like maybe there's a Puritan sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, repression going on there. And so that's, that's why there's sort of this violent, you know, mm -hmm. TARDIS 
maybe not TARDIS destroying, but TARDIS like damaging, you know, force that goes on here that is, you know, clearly puts the next mm-hmm. iteration of the Doctor in some pretty dire straits. Um, right. So, I like, like again, I I don't know if that rises to the level of arc or if it if it's just like there's like. Yeah, again, some, like, variations on a theme that ultimately does sort of, you know, lead to some kind of growth. But mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't know, like, is there, like, a critical mass that, you know, we need before we get arc? I, I don't know right. where that How, is. Right. Where's the line? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it doesn't really occur to me um, in contemporary things to think that there might not be an arc. Like, I mean, maybe in, like, older literature, like, you know, you know, maybe not all of medieval literature cared about character arcs or whatever, like, but certainly today, I think it's sort of just part of what you assume is you know, your bag of tricks. So it's sort of hard to even remove yourself enough from your own context to even see like, yeah, what even is a character arc? How do we define it? And how exactly do we pinpoint it when it happens? Um, I think what we definitely have is a, is a like a performance arc, you know, a, an evolving conception of both from the writing and the acting, like how to do the 12th doctor. Like he certainly changes, you know, he's not the same in his first episode as he is in the last. Um, But I don't know that that was necessarily, you know, a sort of designed story as much as a bunch of, you know, writers and an actor figuring out what's the best way to deliver this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, and if it has resonance with a character arc, again, it's probably um, incidental rather than deliberate, but not that that is a problem. Like I'm happy to retcon all sorts of things back onto <laughs> like the characters and the themes and the story and everything. Um, yeah. Cause they, you know, they don't know in season series eight, what they're going to do in series 10. So I think part of the fun is going back, knowing what we know and sort of making the two kind of work together. Um, Um, anything else about the 12th Doctor or, um, you know, Capaldi's performance? I had, like, um, a note here that I, you know, want to at least acknowledge Clara and Bill, um, as the main companions, but if you had anything else about Capaldi, we could. 
No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, it's it's hard to say how much of this is Capaldi versus the writing and art Mm -hmm. or lack thereof and all of that. Um, I think he's a fine actor, but, like, I think overall, like, just thinking of the Capaldi era, like, the things that I, the things that I'm going to remember, I feel like, from it are not him and, like, Mm. his doctor. It's going to be, like, Mm -hmm. Missy and the, you know, vaults and, like, her coming out of it and being pretending to be the doctor or it's going to be like Clara and face the Raven and like Mm -hmm. that. I'd like, I'd like to include Bill in that, but I, I'm not sure she's that memorable too, for kind of reasons we've already talked Mm -hmm. through again, like similarly, like a, a fine actor and likable enough, but like, kind of bland from a actual like story and character development perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, I know that's not that, that can be a controversial opinion for some reason, Clara tends to be divisive, um, but I'm on the same page as you and going through season eight right now with like the Uruditorum blog um, is just a reminder of, how good her storylines were. And, um, and like, yeah, those two seasons that she was with Capaldi, they were great together. And, you know, she was a big part of the success of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, not for everybody. Again, like there's definitely a, a segment that, um, were rubbed the wrong way by her character and her dynamic. And, um, you know, and, Ironically, I think the thing that we're kind of, you know, what we're arguing makes her so great, which is a really strong and clear and exciting sort of, you know, character development. Um, For some people felt like she took over the show, Um, that it became sort of about Clara for two or three years. Um, to which some might answer, what's wrong with that? You know, <laughs> like, if she's where the money is, like, if that's the most compelling dynamic that you have, then go for it, you know? Like, why shouldn't the companion have, you know, a really strong arc? Um, yeah. And maybe it's the difference of you're used to you know, the previous doctors sort of like, yes, the companion is the star, but like the doctor's really the star and is sort of dominating. Um, whereas like with Capaldi, the dynamic shifted a bit to, at least with Clara, um, she got maybe a little bit more, um, weight or attention that, um, I don't know, previous companions hadn't, quite had before sure and that's what maybe that's another reason why bill feels slightly underwhelming is like you want something as emotionally satisfying as like face the raven um yeah so well and i mean i i do think 
I do think with the Doctor Falls, and even with World Enough and Time, that you start going in that direction. It's just like right. they wait so long, and I think actually, I I, right. I, I right. think this is part of the frustration with Bill for me is that coming out of like it, you, you know, coming out the the gate with her, she's so mm-hmm. like. Just as a character, she's so bright and like just gets things like like she picks up on things that like other companions have to be, you know, have to have explanation. But we don't like, you know, like she's figuring out like the language stuff versus like Mm -hmm. literally every other companion. The doctor has to explain that the that the TARDIS is like translating things. And so I think right. I think my frustration and I, I I'm just sort of like putting this together now too, so like it could be revised or like feel free to like, you know, mm-hmm. question it or whatever. But like I think part of my frustration is that like there's so much promise there and like ability mm-hmm. to get her sort of up to speed quickly and like knowing that it's the last season to then like develop her character. But it's like they kind of like take eight episodes when they only mm-hmm. needed like three to get her to a point mm-hmm. where like you're doing something real like you know yeah. evocative and and uh you know I don't even know what the right word is, but like you know to that point of like where you're really seeing her humanity and stuff, and so like I feel like if they could have gotten there by like a mid-season, you know, two or three-part mm-hmm. arc, then that would have been great. And then you've got, like, the back half of the season to, like, really develop, mm-hmm. like, the impacts of, like, a change or, like, you know, I don't I, I don't even know because, like, we don't have it. Like, I don't know what else they could have done. Yeah. But, like, I yeah. think that's part of the frustration is that, like, because she was so, like, smart and quick and able to grasp things that, like, other companions didn't, get until like later or you know had to be told or whatever but then they never like do anything with that they just sort of like they bring her up to speed Mm -hmm. really quickly and then it's just like okay we're gonna like do like half a dozen episodes here that are just kind of like whatever and then we're gonna do like the end of the season right and what i think what they're missing is again having reviewed season eight with the with the blog, um, they're missing a kill the moon, you know, of like that central episode of, you know, where you have those kind of very basic and standard episodes leading up to it. And then there's this kind of turning point of, you know, the doctor and Clara have this sort of unprecedented argument, you know, that like a level of fight that we've never seen on the show and there's like a break in the relationship. And then everything after that is just so much deeper and richer and more complicated just for having come after that and having to sort of figure out where to go from there. Um, and I wonder if like Oxygen or those episodes were supposed to be that, like a mid-season episode that really like tested Bill and everything. But I feel like they never really had her be the center of any episode. It was always like she did something, but really the doctor sort of saved the day in the end. Um, 
you know, she never was never really the solution to any particular jam that they were in. Um, so you're right. Like she doesn't really have a breaking point until her finale episodes. Um, and then it's like, all right, just by the time this is getting good, it's over, you know, right. <laughs> like, um, it's like, we're starting, this is starting to get interesting. And then that's the end of the season and the actors are gone. And, um, that's the end of the character arcs. So, right. yeah. So maybe could have taken a lesson from season eight that way. Um, yep. Okay. Well, we're bad at our hour. Maybe I just want to finish really quickly um, with the kind of like passing the torch, looking forward to Chibnall stuff, which I just want to mention a few things because whenever we come back to talk about this, if, if we get to do that, um, I think this seems like it'll, you know, hopefully I think be the biggest kind of change certainly since Moffat took over, but probably since the show came back, um, you know, I mean, obviously we have a new doctor with a new gender, which is, you know, very new. Um, she, it's confirmed that she will have three full-time companions. So they're shifting the dynamic a bit. It's not just the kind of double act. Um, it's going to be more of an ensemble. It sounds Mm -hmm. like, um, and, um, you know, the same kind of design elements we, that Moffat read. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go do ahead. we know who they are? Like the makeup? Like, we are do. they going to be, well, and also like, are they humans? Will they be like aliens or do we just know like the actors at this point? That we don't know. Um, it seems we haven't seen any like alien makeup or anything like that. So it seems like they're humans, but, um, I guess it could be a human looking alien. We don't right. quite like, know yet. Like um, Nardal. Right. So there's like a um an older, like middle aged um gentleman, um, and then two younger companions, um, like in their like teens or twenties or something like that. Um so and and I don't think anybody knows yet anything about who they are, what the context is mm-hmm. or Yeah. You sure. know, what, how she's going to meet them or like whether they all come at the same time or in different ways. We don't, we don't know that yet, but, um, um, but yeah, so that's, I mean, and there have been starting back in the very beginning of Doctor Who and then a few times throughout the classic series, there were times where it was a TARDIS crew. Like there was, you know, three or four full-time regular companions um you know even though we think of the kind of doctor with one single female as the kind of standard um you know when it started it was the doctor and his young granddaughter and then the two sort of middle-aged teachers um so in a way this is kind of harking back to that um and who knows what else he's going to you know change in the format we're not sure yet um he's there's definitely going to be new designs like same stuff Moffat changed when he came in like new TARDIS design new logo um 
they're even like getting new types of like cameras, um, like different camera equipment to use. Um, the biggest one in a way I think is, um, the composer Murray Gold is leaving and he has been with the show since episode one with Rose. Okay. Um, which is probably longer than any single other person <laughs> like in the new series. Sure. Like, other than, other than Moffat, who's been writing since series one, like nobody else has been there all the way through. Um, so just even the idea of like, we've been so used to the music that he would create, like what, what could that even be? You know, mm. um, like they could go in a completely different direction, which I think has a big effect on, the tone of the show. Um, so I think that'll sort of change things. And then another sort of rumor that is unconfirmed um, is that Chibnall was thinking about doing an American writer's room style of writing um, rather than doing the normal like freelancing system where he like oversees the scripts that are farmed out to the various writers and he might edit or suggest revisions or maybe even rewrite them. But basically they're all done by freelance. Um, and that would be a significant change if he had like, you know, a team of people in a room, you know, maybe writing individual episodes, but collaborating like that would certainly create the more kind of arc heavy story that we're familiar with. Um, so that would be interesting if he decided to do that. And as far as we know, he's not bringing anybody back. Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. so as far as we know, you know, Gatiss, Whithouse, Gareth Roberts, boop, they're all out. Even the new guys, um, that Moffat brought in like Sarah Dollard and, you know, Jamie Matheson and Peter Harness, it does not sound like any of them are contributing to the next season. Um, whereas Moffat did bring in some of the Davies regulars. Right. So, um, again, like if you're dealing with completely new people, there's really no way to predict what that will result in. So, um, so it's kind of exciting. And hmm. so I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes and, um, I'll send it to you. You can watch it if you want. When, um, Chibnall was a, a young lad in the eighties, um, it's freely available on YouTube. He appeared on a BBC show with a bunch of other Doctor Who fans from like the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. And it's this like completely embarrassing, like, um, you know, blackmail material that I'm sure he regrets <laughs> having <laughs> ever done because he looks like the kind of like, you know, goofy stereotype of, you know, 1986 Doctor Who fan. Um, but it was a bunch of fans on a BBC talk show talking to some of the writers and producers of Doctor Who then criticizing them for... Um, what they saw as its terrible quality at the time. Um, so they were like, you know, singling out like the plot is overly complicated. The acting is unrestrained. There's like too many cliches. Um, and, you know, Chibnall says 
uh, that it would be nice to have something totally different from the norm just for a change. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to see, like, even back then, there, there was, he had the push to say, like, I don't just want the same thing. Like, you know, it's time for something different. Yeah. Um, which might be a little ironic because his episodes are not exactly considered revolutionary <laughs> so sure. i know people have this um people have this youtube video queued up and they will send it to him you know the second that he makes a mistake i'm sure um but you know at least in intention it seems like he's somebody who wants to push the show into some place that it hasn't been before um and get sort of bored when it's when he sees it as being just sort of like the same old thing. So maybe that gives us an indication of what his objectives are. Cool. Um, yeah. And then, so the only other thing I had was a little kind of where are they now section, um, for all our regulars here. So, um, some things to look out for. Um, Moffat, um, he wrote a show called uh, Jekyll, which was out a while ago. Um, that is, apparently, he's not doing it, but it's being adapted into a movie um, with Chris Evans. So, that's a thing. That's a kind of modernized Jekyll and Hyde, but like a precursor to Sherlock. Um, and uh, so, with Mark Gatiss, he's also working on an adaptation of Dracula, um, which he says is like Sherlock, but not modernized. So, you know, take that however you will. Um, and he also insists that Sherlock will probably come back someday when, uh, when everybody's schedules get on the same page. <clears throat> yeah. Because um, British television is weird. Yeah, like three episodes every three and a half years is kind of how it works. Um, so in addition to those things, um, Mark Gatiss is always in a million things. So he's going to be in uh, the Good Omens show with David Tennant. Um, and then there's also this live action movie of Christopher Robin that he's going to be in as well. Um, which, uh, I also noticed Peter Cabaldi is in Voicing Rabbit, which oh, I really? think is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> like that might be inspired casting. Um, and um, also for Capaldi, um, he's going to get back together with Armando Iannucci, who created The Thick of It, um, which was the show that made uh, Capaldi pretty famous. Um, and they're going to do an adaptation of uh, the David Copperfield, um, the Dickens novel. Um, and not, not the magician? Not, no, it doesn't seem that way. Um, the other David Copperfield, the lesser known. <laughs> um, so Pearl Mackey, um, went back and did, um, some theater. She did a Harold Pinter play, um, uh, earlier this year. And then she's also announced for at least a few episodes. It's hard to tell. I don't think the full information is up yet, but a show called the gods of medicine, um, that she's going to be in, um, and then Matt Lucas, I just saw recently on a Netflix movie called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, 
um, which was about the origins of the National Lampoon. Um, so it was just sort of stumbled on that the other week. <laughs> so it was funny to see him. Um, and he's also in like other like animated movies, like doing voices and that sort of thing. Um, and then a couple of other of the writers have some good things coming up. Um, Peter Harness wrote a few episodes of McMafia, which was just on recently. And, um, he is adapting war of the worlds for BBC. Um, so I'm kind of excited about that. And, um, and Sarah Dollard is working on an adaptation of a book called A Discovery of Witches. Um, and that is with Alex Kingston um, and um, produced by uh, Bad Wolf TV, which is Julie Gardner's, you know, production company um, based in Cardiff. So there's clear Doctor Who connections there. Um, you know, that word that, you know, she established after her time on Doctor Who. So, um, that's another good thing to watch out for, I think. That's very cool. And that's all I have. All right. So, um, yeah, well then I guess we'll move on to some Buffy. Um, and we'll sort of start out the same way. I'm not going to go through like everything because um, we've obviously talked about some uh, of some of the awards and things that the show has received in its various seasons and, and certain episodes, um, including just the last one where we talked about Chosen. Um, but I did want to sort of just like just like to note some of the like like the big ones, like the fact that like Sarah Michelle Geller, um, you know, was nominated for a Saturn award pretty much every year. I, I think just missing like one year, um, otherwise mm -hmm. like every, every year, um, you know, she was nominated for that, but then also like in the later seasons, you know, they, there were pretty much nominations across every category between, um, Buffy and Angel, and then, you know, sometimes both, um, with, mm -hmm. with, in a lot of cases, people winning, like James Marsters winning twice for supporting actor, once for Angel and once for Buffy, um, or no, sorry, both for, oh, shoot, no, I think I let that slip, because I think the lit second one is actually for Angel. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> You know, uh, Allison Hannigan, Emma Caulfield, uh, you know, James Marshers again for like, you know, face of the future award and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, just a lot of, um, you know, sort of support in the genre, you know, uh, realm there. Um, but also some Emmys, um, you know, and we've talked about, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, uh, the technical ones, you know, like outstanding makeup and, and music composition are ones, uh, are Emmys that they won. Um, but, you know, also Emmys that, uh, you know, they were nominated for, um, you know, hairstyling, cinematography. Um, Hush got a nomination for writing, which is like the one sort of non-technical, you know, like more prestigious uh, Emmy that... Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it was nominated for, um, 
I mean, even Beer Bad got like an Emmy nomination um, for <laughs> hairstyling. Uh, and of course, yeah. everyone can sort of picture uh, Sarah's hair in that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe deserved for that one thing, even if the rest of the episode sort of didn't uh, didn't deserve anything. Um, but what's really it? Oh, Beer Bad. I kind of like Beer Bad. Well, <laughs> you're the one. Maybe um, not, maybe not a word worthy, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. fire bad, true, pretty, all of that. Um, mm-hmm. but what, what's interesting is, um, kind of in recognition that the show should have gotten better, <laughs> uh, you know, better recognition by the TV Academy, um, after the show was finished, um, they actually, did sort of a special tribute event. Now, I mean, obviously it's not the same as actually winning an award, um, but they Mm -hmm. kind of went out of their way and, and invited the cast and crew to come, um, you know, to North Hollywood and, and kind of held this tribute to Buffy, um, the show that never won any Emmy. No, I mean, it won, you know, a couple technical Emmys and all that. Um, But, you know, like Sarah Michelle Geller didn't show up and like it, it wasn't it wasn't maybe as well received as maybe they were hoping. Mm-hmm. Um but at least the gesture It wasn't the event they were hoping for. At, at, at least the gesture was there to sort of recognize like, oh, maybe we should have noticed you better when you were around kind of thing, you know. Um Yeah. But all of that to say that like you know, for its seven year run, you know, really did rack up quite a few awards and nominations. And, um, you know, again, a lot of them genre or, you know, technical awards, but certainly no, uh, no slouch when it comes to that. Um, so kind of nice to see that sort of recognition. Um, and talking through the series though, I think there's no, there's not really like, awards for like entire series right like a series might get an award for like its final Mm -hmm. season or whatever but like they don't really give out awards for like best series overall or whatever i mean there might be like lifetime achievement type awards and stuff but even that kind of goes beyond the idea of the series um yeah but what is sort of interesting is just like the number of lists that like Mm -hmm. you know of like best shows of all time that it comes on. And so just sort of reading through some of the ones, I mean, you know, 41 on the TV guide, 50 greatest shows, um, you know, 27 on Hollywood reporters, top 100 shows, you know, um, third in TV guides, top cult shows, uh, you know, in time magazines, 100 best shows, uh, other TV guide lists, other, you know, like AOL TV and Rolling Stone and sci-fi, you know, Mm -hmm. so just, you know, consistently appears even still, like some of these were like just even within the last few years, Um, like the Mm -hmm. Rolling Stone list was 2016 kind of in, um, well, I was going to say in preparation for Buffy, but like, I mean, it's the hundred best shows. So it wasn't just Buffy, obviously, but sort of like, in that in that mode of like leading into Buffy's you know twentieth anniversary, the the idea that like it's still sort of pulling 
fairly high on some of these lists. That was, you know, 38 on that Rolling Stone list. So, um, you know, really kind of interesting. And I mean, we, we, you know, we might, you know, we can talk about the, um, sort of cultural impact maybe a little bit too, but I think that's kind of a interesting indicator, you know, even more than the awards is just sort of the staying power that, the show mm-hmm. has had and and its ability to sort of continue to rank on those types of lists, uh, yeah. you know, 20 <clears throat> years later, um, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, we'll, we'll need to get to the favorite episodes. Now, um, you had to, like, stop me because when we said favorite episodes, I like immediately said, Ooh, like my favorite episode of the series. And you're like, well, we should probably do like season seven since we've already sort of noted our favorite episodes from, from seasons past, um, Mm -hmm. which obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, And I'm still excited about the one I chose, but um, (laughs) since, uh, since I went first with Dr. Who, why don't you tell us uh, your favorite episode and sort of why you like it? I am picking uh, the Anya episode, Selfless, um, which I remember getting a real kick out of watching. (laughs) And um, I think I just really, I mean, beyond it being, you know, we both enjoy Anya's character. So having kind of something centered on her is always sort of exciting and fun. Um, it it was one of those things where I think we talked about at the time how this might again have been accidental rather than by design, but for whatever reason, I loved the kind of schizophrenia of it, um, of like swinging from, you know, goofy kind of parodied flashbacks into like, you know, suddenly you're back in the musical episode for one scene and then you were, you know, in, you know, this frat house where she's going demon again and doing all these really horrible and violent things. And suddenly the Scoobies are sort of, you know, and amongst all the comedy and the outrageousness, the Scoobies are like trying to kill each other. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this conflict, you know, between Anya and Buffy and then the question of how does Xander f- factor into that? Whose side does he take? How can he kind of separate the two? Um, and I just like the way that it just kind of jumped between all of those things. Um, maybe with the innocence of it being Drew Goddard's first one of, you know, he'd ma- he tried things that he didn't, he he hadn't right. he wasn't cynical enough to not try them. Like he hadn't learned like, oh, I can't do this yet. Yeah. Um, or like we only for, get one shot of like chopping this tree down. <laughs> right, right. Um and rather than it being that he completely fell on his face, I felt like for the most part, all of these experiments really like, you know, succeeded. Um yeah. and it was a really interesting like mixture of elements that you just would not think would be able to go together in any sort of 
after we're talking about the, you know, the importance of thematic coherence, um, <laughs> this manages, this manages to have thematic coherence in, while having like being made up of parts that have, you know, nothing to do with each other or are <laughs> yeah. so antagonistic that you would think that they wouldn't work. Um, but I think they kind of do. And I like, I just like the kind of crazy free for all that the episode yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, you know me, I've, I always enjoy the episodes that maybe are a little more, um, and, and just stories in general, even like in movies and stuff that are a little less linearly told. Um, mm -hmm which this has, you know, with the flashbacks and the cuts and the, you know, different right. sort of things going on. So, yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I like that one as well. Um, so, yeah. Do you, do you think, what, how, do you look at it differently knowing that Anya dies? at the end of the series. Yes. And I'll tell you why, when I clicked on the um, Wikipedia page here, just to remind myself of some of the details, um, the photo that they have chosen is her like impaled and dead. <laughs> and suddenly it's like, well, that was a little bit of foreshadowing, wasn't it? Um, like, you know, you're, you're set up for, you almost get like a practice run at her death, you know? Um, and I mean, it, maybe it doesn't go deeper than that. It's not like the circumstances of the, of the two are similar and like in some ways they're kind of opposite. Like, whereas here she's sort of being killed by Buffy, um, you know, to protect innocent people from her demon vengeance. Um, by the end of the season, she's completely committed to mm -hmm. her friends and the cause of humanity and her own, like her own embracing of her own humanity and what that means to fight for something, knowing that she's mortal and, you know, will die and, will die a lot sooner if she starts fighting for things. Um, but she does it anyway. So it's a kind of a foreshadowing, but also like setting up her at the extreme opposite end of where she's going to end up eventually. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so the one I chose, um, and I, I don't know that I, like, I wasn't, I didn't actually even consider selfless, which is probably maybe a little bit odd compared to, um, given my love of Anya and um, nonlinear storytelling. Um, but I also chose one that's sort of a nonlinear told uh, mm -hmm. episode, which is, of course, Storyteller. Um, the Andrew episode um, or the episode sort of as told by Andrew in, in some ways. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think 
actually for a lot of the very same reasons you just described why you like selfless i think uh, all all those apply um or at least in large part to storyteller not and it's not because it's like the jump in time per se although there's like some of that because you get like his narration of like who people are and where they come from and stuff um but yeah the the sort of different um you know different techniques and the different sort of like uh styles of you know from looking through like a camcorder lens to like <laughs> like the the very like what i what i guess is like what andrew sees in his head when he looks at people of like you know mm-hmm. buffy's hair blowing back and like you know the the light in certain ways and sort of the I don't, I don't know glossiness i guess of like the shot you know or like you right. know everybody's like in uh you know magazine photo shoot yeah. um all the time yeah um but also like i think i think going beyond sort of the like oh this is how andrew sees the world i think it's where uh, you know, this is where he's sort of at a turning point of what he, you know, how he's choosing to engage, like, with this group that he's initially captured into, but then, like, sticks around with. And and very similarly to Anya, like, chooses to fight, even though he's convinced that he's gonna die in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ends up not doing so but that doesn't like sort of prevent him but this is like storyteller is like i think the pivot point there like i don't like i don't think he's made the decision but i also don't think like i think at this point he's decidedly not evil this is like his version of the neutral reporter observer you know just recording events as he sees them and so mm-hmm. I think if it's not quite a turn towards, you know, like Buffy and heroism and the good guys, like it's it's at least a turn away from like his former, you know, life and vision of himself as, you know, a evil criminal mastermind um, who like also mimics Spike in his dress. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, just from a character perspective, it's it's interesting in that way too. And I like I I like Andrew. Like I always thought he was kind of funny, and and I mean I like Tom Lank as an actor. Um, so I think mm-hmm. you know that's fun uh, to to get him and sort of his perspective on things, mm-hmm. um, and a little bit. I mean. There's definitely, like, some bleaker moments in it, too. But, like, I think in a largely, you know, heavy season, um, just, like, tonally heavy and thematically heavy, like, it's a little bit lighter, too. Which, Selfless has the lighter moments as well. But, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like Storyteller's even more of, like... I mean, it's certainly not a fluff piece, and I think it there's some very important things that you can pull out of it, but like 
I think it has like even maybe a little bit more light of a tone yeah. than even Selfless does. Yeah, and it kind of ends with the gut punch, but like leading up to that, it's very like it's more comedic and entertaining, and yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember too really liking. I don't know if I can phrase it quite the same way we did the last time, but how it's sort of an inversion of uh, Superstar. You know, like, mm. there's something similar. There's an echo of Jonathan sort of having this distorted vision of the world. But, like, whereas he kind of imposed his ideal versions of things onto the world, it's like, for Andrew, he just lives in his head. And he has the idealized version in his head, but, like, nobody else can see it and, like, has any idea that, like, this is right. the grandiose epic that he's living in. Yeah. Um, well, and I... So that's... It's kind of an interesting connection, but difference between the two of them. Yeah. And, and sort of in that way, like, it is funny because, like, there, there's always, like, those things that, like you care about, but, like, nobody else seems to ever care about. And so, like, mm-hmm. like I think there's sort of universality to that. Um, it might not be the same exact things that Andrew cares about, but, like, I think everyone has those things of, like, why does nobody else care as much of me as me about this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but for him, it just mm-hmm. seems like it's cranked up to, like, 11. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good one. So I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like at the end of the series, maybe there is an opportunity to reflect on favorite, you know, shows from the entire series. But you know, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't have to. Um. No, I mean, we can reiterate. <laughs> I feel like probably everybody would know by now if they know us. But, um, but there's nothing wrong with restating it just to like plant our flags and you know make sure that we broadcast it <laughs> well fine it, yeah it was funny when i was like we need to pick every uh, favorite episodes and you're like the body and i'm like nope from season seven <laughs> <laughs> like i know your favorite i know what your favorite episode is. that's not what i'm asking you <laughs> yeah no i mean okay fine so, yes, it's the body. It's still the body. Nothing in this past five years has not changed my mind on that. This, um, this uh, slow uh, glacial rewatch didn't change your no, view on no. that. No, I, I mean, there's just so many things to like about it um, and so mm-hmm. many, like, feelings to feel about it. And so I think for me... That's probably just always going to be the case. Um, Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, that's not like there's certainly. I feel like if anything, and like so like using that as a springboard to talk about like the series as a whole, I feel like if anything, this rewatch for me and taking the slower pace has hasn't changed my opinion about the episodes I already thought were good. What mm-hmm. I think it has done is that in some cases, uh, beer bad is not one of them. But in some <laughs> in some cases, episodes that I thought were maybe mediocre or uh-huh. not not as good, you know, even bad, um, 
to to help me to appreciate them a little bit more in the context of things. Right. Um, right. So I like, yeah, I don't like it. It didn't shift like my first, you know, favorite episode or anything out of spot. You know, there's no new king or queen of the hill, but it it definitely has helped me. I think in some some of those lesser appreciated um stories mm-hmm. to kind of see what you know the good points might be about them right and see the part they play in the larger whole like even if they weren't the most brilliant on your first watch i guess you can appreciate the where they fit in the puzzle yeah you know and um, and i think yeah and that, I mean, obviously, like, that's what slowing down does, is is it yeah. forces you to, like, contemplate. Whereas, like, if you're binge-watching, especially yeah. if you know that, like, you don't really particularly favor a particular episode, like, you can go, like, have the, you can have that episode on while you're, like, washing dishes for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, mm-hmm. you don't have to kind of deal with it and think about it because you already know you don't like it. But if, if you know that, yeah. like, you're going to end up talking an hour, you know, with someone else about it and that, like, you need to prepare notes and, like, look at it and really think about, you know, wherein its badness consists, like, then mm-hmm. then you, you know, are sort of forced to say, well, actually... Now that I look at it this closely, like, I can see maybe why they did things a different way. You know, maybe it didn't quite work as well as it did, but I at least see where they're going with it or, or what they were trying yeah. to do with it. And and it makes a little more sense now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely, that's definitely the case. And the reverse is somewhat true, too, that, like... um when it's time for me to kind of just watch it like normal, um, maybe certain episodes that felt like a slog because I didn't have as much to say about them might be more fun to just say, well, this one isn't so deep. It's just a fun thing to watch. Um, not all of them are designed for like the level of scrutiny. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's kind of trade-offs, but, um, but yeah, like that's good to know that you definitely got a little bit more out of some of the lesser appreciated episodes. Um, my favorite, I don't think is lesser appreciated. I, I, it's among the, the, you know, critical favorites. I'll, I don't know if it's quite at the top, but um, I still really like Restless a lot, um, and kind of similar to selfless in some ways i think it just does everything um like it has kind of the absurd laugh out loud humor at times it has really scary moments um the surrealism is as high as it ever gets in the show so you get all these layers of like metaphor and symbolism and dream logic and you're trying to figure out like what does this all mean Mm -hmm. and how that works with the mythology and everything um and then just the clever ways that they get you know kind of 
map out the dreamscapes of all these characters. Sure. Um, and kind of show like how they physically even like move through that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I just very entertaining on my first, you know, watch and then like really enjoyed kind of going through it and trying to sort of pick it apart and figure out like what, not what does it mean because inherently the dream logic there's no definitive one answer to that. But the fun of it is trying to figure out like what I think it means or what does it mean to me? Um, and sort of how do I see the characters reflected in this kind of bizarre nightmare that they're trapped in? Um, and as the kind of series turning point, it has the weight of that. Like, all right, this is wrapping up you know, season four, so it's like we're halfway through the story and this is like a big kind of deep breath before we plunge into like the second half of the story. So I kind of like that aspect of it too. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so how about like cultural impact? Um you know, so you mentioned that it's on all these, you know, best of lists. So clearly it impacted the culture in the sense that it's still talked about and rewatched and uh, analyzed and fought over and all these different things. Um, yeah. And even like leading to like still new creative works like. You know, there are still journals and conferences, obviously, that focus on Buffy and, you know, Whedon's work in general. Um, I know that I've seen contemporary fan art, like people animating videos, like there's that one cartoonist who did like the animated adventures of Buffy. And it was like a little, it was like what the credits would be. Like, it's not the whole season. It's just like here's a potential credits for like an animated spinoff and stuff. And that just came out like a couple of years ago. Um, sure. Although, uh, there actually was, uh, a, a pen. So, okay. So we, yes, let's talk about cultural impact because there's a lot to talk okay. about. Um, definitely, uh, Definitely, I I think, yeah, I mean, it's clear that Buffy is still a much beloved thing. I mean, there was, uh, like, I'm part of two different Facebook groups, one rather small and one rather large. Um, the smaller one being the Weed and Studies Association. But, but really, when that started, was, like, Buffy and Angel. And I guess Firefly. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, you know, so those were the shows, yeah. but, like, Firefly, like Angel, you know, obviously came after Buffy and like a lot of it was really around Buffy. Um, From a, from like a TV perspective. um, Oh, well, and so, and then the other group is like a fan group, which has like tens of thousands of people in it. And it's like, you get like the memes and the, you know, references and like the constant like responses of like, the joke that seems to never get old of, you know, 
wait, Ben is glory. And like those types <laughs> of things where it's just like the same things over and over, but mm-hmm. people just love it and love to quote it and love to share it. And, you know, you get like the newbies who are like, you know, brand new to the show. And then you get like the people who are like, I've loved Buffy for years and I have a new boyfriend and he's never seen it. How do I introduce him to it? You know, and like, mm-hmm. like, like those types of things. Um, so, I mean, just the fact that like it's debated and talked about and, you know, referenced and considered and, you know, people like follow the actors and they'll say like, Oh look, Willow's on a new show and like refer to them by their character mm-hmm. names and like that kind of thing. Um, you know, even though that's, you know, 15 years later or whatever, like, you know, definitely resonates, you know, with a lot of people. Um, From a television perspective, there's, there's been some um, really interesting, you know, comments and a lot of people. So uh, we talked about like, you know, Doctor Who season 10, you know, series 10, like not having an arc. Well, obviously, Buffy is, like, the the opposite extreme of that, right? Like, where mm-hmm. not only do we get arcs, but sometimes, like, very heavily arced seasons. Um, and not to mm-hmm. say that we don't get, like, one-off episodes and stuff here and there, but, uh, you know, some seasons... You, you, some people cite season three as one of the reasons why it's so good is because it has such a strong arc and, like, you know, it's well mapped out and well executed and all of that. And Buffy is kind of widely credited as being the first show to really do that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So, uh, for example, a couple quotes here, which I'm just sort of finding on Wikipedia, but, you know, I'll pretend like I did the research myself. Um, You know, The Village Voice, there was uh, an article by Stephanie's, uh, Zacharek, I think is how you pronounce it, um, that says, if we really are in a golden age of television, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was the harbinger. Um, Robert Moore wrote on Pop Matters that uh, TV was not art before Buffy, but it was afterwards. Um, now, I, you know, those might be uh, a little grandiose. Like, I, I don't, like, there was no artistic TV before Buffy. Seems a little you know, maybe like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's a word, um, hyperbolic. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, there's sort of the suggestion in there that, um, you know, these longer story arcs and, and the like more attention to detail and maybe some of the more experimental things in both Restless and the Body and Hush and, you know, some of the the well-received ones. And also maybe some of the experimental things that aren't, as well received, but maybe, mm-hmm. you know, were tried and tweaked and, you know, gone on later. Um, yeah. Now, I will say, I would quibble a little bit with, like, crediting Buffy solely, because I think also, like, The X-Files, um, which started several years before Buffy, um, did more if not arc at least had a focus on the sort of continuing mythology in a way that I don't think had really happened before. And what's interesting. So, um, 
Buffy started in 1997. The X-Files started in 1993, but they ended very close to the same time. Um, uh, X-Files ended just a year before Buffy did uh, and and started four Mm -hmm. years before Buffy did. So, uh, you know, I say a minor quibble because like there was quite a bit of overlap there, (laughs) like, you know, six years of overlap. And so, or, you know, six seasons anyway of overlap. And so you get, um, yeah, a sense that like maybe if X Files was there slightly first, that like the two of them together are sort of doing the same thing, and and so maybe, uh, maybe we can credit each of them uh, to some degree. But but that, I don't say that to you know, just like Buffy giving power to like the other potentials doesn't diminish her power. I don't mean that as a diminishment of what Buffy did, just to say that like. There was at least one other show kind of doing the same thing around the same time. Um, mm-hmm. All that to say that, like, yeah. there are a number of shows that um, go on to produce the, uh, well, uh, you know, to use the term that you dislike, the the strong female character. Um, you know, that... And more specifically, one that has, like, supernatural powers and is, like, you know, destined to sort of, like, save the world or, um, you know, whatever. But, like, also has, like, a normal life as a teenager or young woman, (laughs) you know. Um, And so you get shows like... Uh, Dead Like Me, which I've mentioned and have have suggested as a potential show we might want to look at um, before. Um, uh, Joan of Arcadia is another one. Uh, True Calling, which, um, you know, was created by Douglas Petrie and Jane Espenson and stars Eliza Dushku. So maybe not wholly surprising that that one is, uh, you know, got some resonance with Buffy. Um, Veronica Mars, which is maybe... Like Buffy right. without the supernatural element, um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, some others uh, along those lines, um, and of course we've talked about even uh, 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 you know the Doctor Who influence uh, mm-hmm. that Buffy had, um, and, uh, and and there's even some suggestion of Torchwood, and you've told me. And we're going to be looking at shortly that uh, class has um, some resonance with Buffy and is sort of maybe can be looked at as a, 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 an amalgamation or a, a blending of Buffy and Doctor Who in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting, too, is that so I, I, I think these would all be considered like uh, uh, positive, you know, in most people's eyes or at least the people who like the shows. Um, see all these as positive things. Um, there's also potentially a negative one, I, guess, I suppose, depending on your view. Um, the the sort of creation of all these shows um, with their uh, strong uh, females um, <laughs> was sort of chastised by the Parents Television Council, which is one of those sort of more Puritan, maybe re- religious-focused... Uh-huh. Uh, groups that complain to the FCC about all of these shows that are deluging young viewing audiences with adult themes and um, that kind of thing. Um, 
To which the FCC basically said, yeah, just go bother someone else. Um, yes. Uh, that said, apparently the BBD, uh, the BBD, the BBC did uh, censor a few spots when things were shown. So um, particularly uh, the the episode uh, Smashed, which is where, you know, Buffy and Spike bring down the house with their mm-hmm. sexual cavortions. Um so, you know, whether or not, like, we can, you know, look at those things, uh, d- you know, differently or not, uh, I, I think we're both fine with sort of the show as it is. But, like, as a matter of cultural impact, that's like another impact that it would have of, you right, know, right. urging some people to dismay and even rage. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, well, and and pushing the envelope as to what is allowable. Like every time that line gets pushed, it you know widens. You know, for better or for worse, depending on your point of view, it it changes what is acceptable. Um, like on TV or at a PG level or whatever. Um, yeah. Like. I I think one of the things, one of the shows you could include in the, you know, Buffy Descendants um, would be The Magicians, um, which goes way further than Buffy ever did in terms of its, the graphicness of, you know, its material, like in terms of um, some of the language, some of the sex, some of the violence, um, it probably is you know, much more adult than Buffy ever got. But, um, but I feel like there's a through line there of like supernatural show, young people, um, not high school age, but you know, still in grad school, I guess. Um, and dealing with like magic and, you know, a little bit of sci-fi, a little fantasy, a little bit of alternate universes and all that sort of thing. Um, and dealing with like the metaphors of the problems of growing up in young adulthood, um, but like with a lot more sex, drugs, and rock and roll than Buffy would have been allowed to have fifteen years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can see the influence, even if you know times change, obviously. But you know, you don't get to one without having things that came before sort of kicking down the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, I mentioned, um, you know, some of those uh, shows that sort of had like the strong female characters and like, you know, those may have, if not inspired by Buffy, like maybe Buffy helped pave the way for them at least, you know, maybe they, right. maybe those right. shows would have happened, but maybe not quite in the way they did. Or yeah, like you said, like maybe, envelopes would have needed to be pushed further. And so it would have been harder to kind of do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's also the fact that like you get all these writers who kind of get their start or at least get their notice and recognition on Buffy. And so, you know, not that like Jane Espenson never did anything before Buffy, but like, certainly Buffy like allowed her to and and Angel I mean you know a lot of these people wrote for both but like 
went you know went on to do a lot of other things. I mentioned True Calling, which she and Doug Petrie uh, worked on, but then also you know Once Upon a Time, uh, which whatever you might think of the show, like a lot of people seem to like it, and you know is one mm-hmm. that she's been involved with. Um, You've got Tim Minear, who's worked on a bunch of different stuff. The one that maybe sort of is closest to Buffy, in a way, would be, like, Wonder Falls um, that he mm-hmm. worked on. But, um, you know, he's got a lot of sort of one-season wonders out there. Um, and now a lot of anthology shows. And, yeah, and now now you get, right, like, the American uh, Horror Story and that kind of thing. Um, which pushes different types of envelopes right <laughs> um i think in a lot of ways sure uh, yeah you've got um uh, uh david greenwald who created jake 2.0 which i'm not real familiar with but more to the point uh went on to create grim which was a six season show that maybe had a little more resonance to Angel than Buffy, but I remember when that first came out and the reason I started watching it was because it was marketed as by the creator, you know, by the creators of Buffy and Angel. And um, we didn't, didn't have anything to do with it. It was definitely Greenwald that they were talking about there, um, but also brought in, you know, some Buffy actors, um, including Alexis Stenisoff uh, for kind of a recurring mm-hmm. role. Um Stephen S. DeKnight, who you who uh, went on to work on like Smallville, which I feel like is another in the same vein of like young people with like supernatural powers, mm-hmm. you know, you know, saving the world and doing kind of s- stuff. Um, and then now, you know, more into like the Marvel stuff that he's working on with uh, mm-hmm. or has worked on with Daredevil and that kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, you get like. Drew Goddard and David Fury with Lost and other things, uh, you know, that they've gone on to work on. So it's not even just that, like, Buffy influenced, you know, directly because it's like, oh, you know, strong female character. And here's another show with strong female character. It must be influenced by Buffy. Like, it's also that, you know, you have all these writers creating other good shows that maybe Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have had the opportunity to create had Buffy not existed. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I know we kind of talked a lot longer, maybe, than we were expecting to about that particular aspect, but just even on like the shows and like that kind of thing. I mean, it, like it. It's hard to argue with the fact that Buffy and maybe X Files a little bit too. <laughs> I'm I'm still gonna throw that in there, but like it's hard to argue that like Buffy wasn't at like the sort of beginning of what this new, what this peak TV, if we're still in peak TV, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what that phenomenon was Mm -hmm. definitely seems like that was about the time where we can work. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Was like in that late nineties before the kind of boom of the early two thousands. And if there were, multiple shows that obviously had an impact in that. Um, I don't think you can conceptualize that without Buffy. Like you, we can argue the degree to which things were influenced, but like, there's no questioning that, you know, Buffy was a front runner in all these sort of groundbreaking rays and like the genre hopping of it too. Like the fact that like, 
it could be so different from week to week. I feel like just that on its own is such a big influence of some of the things that I really enjoy. Um, of, you know, from the new Doctor Who to Lost to, um, you know, I can't think of any others, but I'm sure there are <laughs> others. Um, there are many shows that do this, but like the freedom with which they would play around and, yeah. um, you know, experiment and try new things and feel like from week to week, things are going to be a little bit different and, you know, not just but kind of be like, you know, the maybe more sitcom or family drama sort of formula of, mm -hmm. you know, one group of characters that they, you know, maybe they have different interactions with each other, but basically the setting and the scenario are always the same. Um, yeah. Um, and like that, I guess that allowed people to come and go and drop in and not watch everything. But I think like starting with Buffy and the technology that came suddenly, it's like when you have access to things on VHS or DVD or streaming or whatever, you can have so much more flexibility to be creative with what you do from week to week. Yeah. Um, one other aspect actually that uh, just came to mind, um, particularly in TV shows, but I think probably elsewhere too, is like references to Buffy as Buffy as like an influence on like the world within the show. So like I'm mm -hmm. thinking, so one, there's like, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, you know, had a had a show uh, briefly with Robin Williams, I think just one season um, called The Crazy Ones. And uh, mm -hmm. like there were like weekly sort of references to Buffy and that. And that's, you know, because that's who she is and, you know, is just kind of like fun, like, oh, let's put something in here. Just like, um, you know, Nathan Fillion kind of included a lot of that kind of thing about you know, with Firefly right. Easter eggs and stuff in his show Castle. Um, but also thinking of like shows like The Magicians, which like sort of mm -hmm. does a bit of deconstruction, but also appreciation of like pop culture and, and you know, right. stuff where um, like there's one episode in particular, I, I feel like they had like more than a dozen like different little references to like Buffy episodes yeah. and things. Um Right, there's one bit where they're, like, trying to speak in code. And <laughs> yeah. He's trying to say to be quiet, so he says, like, we need to be, like, the, you know, the best epi episode of Buffy. And, like, she goes, like, ah, the musical one? Yeah. And then he's, like, no, the other best episode of <laughs> right. Buffy. Like, Which, like, yeah. everybody knows what that is, right? So. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, except you. But, um, and me, because, like, that wow. wasn't my favorite either. But, I mean, they're both very good episodes. Um, well, and I feel like Hush is still the kind of, whether or not it is yeah. everybody's favorite, it's the popular conception of what everybody's favorite sure. is. Sure. So it's, it's the one that you can name that mo almost anybody will get what you mean and, by that. And so there's, um, there's things like that. But, but even there, they're arguing about what's the best episode, right? right? Like that's part of the joke right. is that. He just assumes she's gonna know, and she's so certain that she's like, right. No, yeah. the musical was right. the best right. episode, especially um, given the context of needing to be quiet. Like, right, right. two right. two right. very different like interpretations potentially. 
Um, even yeah, even that sort of thing actually, with the idea of like everybody knows Hush, and like I think I asked you with Chosen, like did you recognize like the last like shot there and you're like oh yeah like mm-hmm. i've totally seen that before or you know that you've seen like certain scenes or knew that like michelle trachtenberg was in and there's there's like a there's sort of like a cultural like awareness of like i don't know if aesthetic is the right word but like this sort mm-hmm. of like the type of thing that buffy is so that like I mean, even if, even if like new people coming to it might have one conception and, you know, that needs adjusting, like, I feel like everyone who does come to it, like already has an idea to some degree of accuracy about like what it is. And so it's just sort of like Mm -hmm. permeated that cultural awareness to that point. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that is with the language. And like the Buffy speak, you know, the like everybody can like sort of pick out and and mimic what Buffy speak is, you know, the um, I mean, I don't even know that I can define it. I was about to just sort of describe it. But like, you know, just that that the the particular way that they have. And I mean, you know, Whedon has used this elsewhere, but it's still sort of referred to as Buffy speak, even when like it's like not being used in the Buffy verse, you know, Mm -hmm. the sort of witty, quippy, um, you know, like verbing of a noun or nounalizing of a verb. I don't know what the right, right, you know, term is there. The, um, you know, we called out the, uh, Anthony head character in Dr. Who with the, uh, shooty dog thing. Right. Like things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, definitely like, that's the kind of thing that, uh, yeah, I feel like just says it like permeates the culture to the point where like I feel like there are people who do it, and maybe when you call it out, you can be like, "Oh, that's like Buffy speak," and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, it kind of is, isn't it?" But like, mm-hmm. but it's not even the sort of thing where like you think about it. It's not like like people don't go like, "Oh, I'm gonna do the Buffy speak now." Like it's just like, "Oh, we speak this way because it's sort of a cultural way to speak," and that all sort of mm-hmm. ties back into what Buffy is or was um, and the ways, Mm -hmm. the particular ways in which they, you know, put across ideas and phrases and that sort of thing. And how teenagers talk, not that all teenagers talk like that, but that like young generations come up with their own particular way. Sure. Like it captures a moment of, you know, here's how young people kind of like made language their own, you and, know. And not only that, but there I've seen like actual like I think on like language log or something, like research on the fact that like like that actually is where like language is uh you, you know, basically in like teenage girls or like like twelve to fifteen or something like that, girls are like where the inventiveness of language like occurs Mm -hmm. and that's like that's like how you get new words and like how like you know i there was some study like tracing back like there there actually is some like scientific (laughs) you know linguistic basis for that that's basis for that idea of like 
teenage girls right. being the ones who basically control the future of the language, which is coining words and yeah, which, which yeah. is kind of, yeah, both scary and awesome at the same time in a way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, and and like, but also not like, like when you think about it, like it's it's not that far off when you think of like. Pro- like the slang that I use is probably rooted in my high school years, right? Like, I like I don't I, like even I feel like even like slang terms that I've learned since then always sound a little sarcastic or forced or you know mm-hmm. not quite right. It's it's the you know take a chill pill or you know whatever like the the early nineties you know stuff that I was saying in high school mm-hmm. that is you know, the stuff that sort of come across, comes across naturally. Um, right. and, and later stuff just always seems a little more, you know, forced or whatever. So it, it, I, I don't right. think it's right. that big of a leap to, to think that, you know, teenagers are the ones creating the new words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anywho. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Beyond like, the other shows and stuff like there's also uh, the, the the story of Buffy and and the Slayers and and other things um, continue uh, in in other forms as well. Um, particularly, I mean, I think most people know by now that like there's like the comic continuations, right? Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, Definitely, um, oh, and by the way, there's, like, an entire, like, Wikipedia page on, like, all the various, like, we only mentioned, like, a handful of, like, Buffy cultural, like, references and, like, things. Like, there's there's oh, just, yeah. like, oh, absolutely. Lists, lists and lists of that. So, like, yes, we're not even, like, scratching the surface. But, um. No, no. Anyway, like, um spinoffs and sort of like or like intended spinoffs um as most of them were undeveloped um there's uh uh so you so you have the comics and that's like they're now up to season 11 right so you have seasons 8 through 11 uh that are that are continuations of the story being told in the comics. And I won't go, I I actually haven't read beyond season nine. So I don't actually even know what the latest two seasons are about. Um, But getting into like, it's not a surprise that getting into like season eight, there's um, an exploration of what does this mean now that we've activated, you know, hundreds, Mm -hmm. thousands of slayers across the world. Um, and, you know, broad strokes, um, there is a big bad, but there's also, like, contentions between different groups of Slayers. And so you end up having, like, these different gangs, and Buffy kind of leads, like, the biggest and, like, most central of the gangs, kind of, you know, and, and is good. But there's other ones that, like, are not doing good. They're doing things that are, like, you know robbing banks and like doing these other things. So I think it gets into some interesting, you know, stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, the format changes, obviously like being a 
comic book. Like there's things that you can do where it's like, hey, we don't need like a massive budget to do like these crazy, you know, stunts and like, you know, monsters and things like that. So, you know, there's maybe a little upping of the ante in some of that. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, generally speaking, yeah, I mean, I think like I I enjoyed reading through them. I, I think they're at least in tone, um, you know, Whedon had a hand in, in writing them along with some of the writers from the series. So, um, in, including Drew Goddard, mm-hmm. I think at least in part of season eight, uh, I don't know if he went on to later seasons, but, uh, yeah. So there's, there's some interesting stuff there. Um, you also get, um, comics like, um, Frey, which we talked about was sort of, um, being written and and published while the last season of Buffy was going on and and so you mm-hmm. get the the through story with the scythe and that kind of thing um which was introduced initially in an episode of Frey um but Frey takes place like hundreds of years in the future so you know it comes after the Buffy story obviously um right right and then there's other um you know, other media, things like um, novels and, and, and novelizations of episodes and that kind of thing. There's something like 60 Buffy novels that were written over the course of oh, several wow. years. Um, you know, we, we've had our discussions about canon and whatever. I mean, I think, like, sort of, you know, like in Whedon's mind, those aren't canon, but like, you know, right. people can right. choose what's in canon and what isn't. Um, there's other... Right comic stories um well i mean angel has a continuation in the comics as well um there's spike and willow and you know some other characters kind of have their own comic stories some of them are retellings or or elaborations on things that happened in episodes and some of them are are not um uh and then there's like uh, uh tales of the slayers so it's like different stories of different slayers throughout uh, time and that kind of thing. Um, from an undeveloped standpoint, um, so you mentioned uh, a trailer for a Buffy animated series. There actually was uh, a, a development that was done for a uh, uh, animated series uh, in the early 2000s. Um, actually started in 2002, so before... Um, the uh you know before the the final season uh finale mm-hmm. um i believe the, the uh so there were like six scripts written i believe like jane espenson wrote one um a couple of the mm-hmm. other you know buffy writers uh wrote one uh of the episodes um so so even though that like more recent like trailer was like fan art and stuff like the idea yeah. of like uh, uh animated Buffy series certainly was uh in process. Um there was uh I mean tell me how awesome this would have sound. There was going to be a Faith the Vampire Slayer uh series uh that would have been run by Tim Minear. <laughs> so I mean that would be that would definitely 
have been an interesting, um, you know, thing. Uh, but yeah, that didn't, that didn't happen, um, obviously. So, uh, yeah, um, Ripper, I think we might have talked about this before, that there yes. was going to yeah. be uh, a potential for a show based on Giles. Uh, again, I think would have been really cool. And he, like even as late as like 2007, 2008 um, would have been cool. Ultimately, uh, like I, I think we're beyond the point where that could happen. Um, some of the, some of the stuff that, uh, was put into that idea and, and would have been, uh, you know, part of that show was eventually like incorporated into the Angel and Faith comics, which, um, is part of the Angel continuation later, not to give away any Mm -hmm. spoilers. Um, there were some, there were a few other things that are, were like maybe even less developed than the, I mean, those were all undeveloped, but like, you know, for some of them, there were like scripts and storylines and, and stuff written. Like, um, just going to like ideas that were kind of thrown around at one point or another. Jane Espenson mentioned that there was a discussion about a show called Slayer School, where it would be, um, you know, kind of, uh, a, a post, uh, you know, a, a post Buffy school for these sort of newly activated slayers. And, um, you know, that never kind of got beyond the sort of like, we're just talking about things phase, but, uh, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely an interesting concept. Um, a spike movie was pitched at one point. Um, and <laughs> eventually like a few years after like the end of Buffy and angel, James Marsters was like, okay, like, there's only so like there's a limit to like how much I can still look like spike. (laughs) So you need to like, if we're not going to do this, like we need to like cut it off at here. Um, and basically he's supposed to be an immortal after all. And we're not getting any younger. Yeah. Basically by 2011, like, you know, what, seven or eight years after the end of Buffy, James Marsters like, okay, I'm, I'm, there's no, there's like, there's no chance at this point. And so we're just going to put all, yeah talk to bed um but anyway so yeah i mean uh, you know that's that kind of is all of the things that could have potentially happened um i think you had mentioned at one point too like if we were to like revisit the buffy verse what would be something because i i actually do think it could happen but i think it would have to happen Mm -hmm. in the right way i -hmm. wouldn't want to see like a reboot of buffy like you know buffy played by a new actor right you know or or even like sarah michelle geller come back and is now like uh you know 30 something or 40 something buffy like Mm -hmm. i don't Mm -hmm. i don't personally think those would work well um yeah Although, you know, you never know. Maybe with the right writers and stuff, it could be okay. Um, I personally think if if they were to do something, I personally think the best thing that could be done, especially given sort of the production value and like alternative, you know, options 
for studios like Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever, I think the best option would be to do something like uh, adapting Frey to, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, to a television series Um, because it's set in the future and you can have a completely different actress, but still explore, you know, a lot of the same themes with, you know, sort of a new setting and new set of challenges, you know, because of technology changes and changes in how, um, you know, like population and, and sort of the understanding, like in, in Frey, like vampires, uh, which they call lurkers are, are like sort of out in the open. They're not like kind of hiding or, you know, semi hiding like they do in Sunnydale and, and Los Angeles and mm-hmm. in, in the Buffy verse. So like, there's sort of like a, a different dynamic there that you can, you know, deal with and explore a number of different uh, topics and themes. Um, that would be my bet for mm-hmm. like sort of the best way to go about coming back to the Buffyverse. I mean, certainly they could try to do like a Ripper with a different actor, uh, you right, know, like young, young Giles. Giles. Or, um, or, I mean, you could potentially do Anthony Head still, because, like, you know, he he's allowed to grow old. Like, you know, it's not like a James mm-hmm. Marsters thing where, like, you could do a 20 years later Ripper story. Um, but, you know, I, I see that as less of an option, um, mm-hmm. personally. Um, so, yeah, or or you could have, like, a whole, like, post-chosen, you know, Slayer school still kind of thing like Jane Espenson talked about. Or, or you know, <laughs> uh, you know, Slayer, the new class, you know, whatever. Like, you know. That, that occurred to me, like, I could see them doing, like, a, like, the girl meets world treatment where, like, you have maybe one or two representatives of the old generation, like, not everybody, but, like, maybe I could see, like, having maybe not even Buffy, but maybe like a school where Willow is a teacher or like you have some connection to the past, but like, it's not about the older generation. It's about the younger generation. And maybe the, the originals might make, you know, the occasional appearance or something. Um, or they might have a supporting role or recurring character, but, um, but it's, but you firmly move the focus away from them and onto like the kids now. Um, so that's the other like model I could see them doing, but maybe those are the two main, like, I don't, I agree. I can't see them bringing, like bringing back the entire cast, like after this much time. Um, and I, it's hard to imagine them completely rebooting it with different actors from the ground up. Um, it's probably better to sort of set it in the world, but just adjacent to like the main Buffy story somehow. Right. Yeah. I, that would be my, I would say, I was going to say guess, but I don't like, honestly, I don't know. Cause like there's so much, I mean, part of the thing too, is that like Joss doesn't own the original Buffy rights because he sold them with the movie. And so like, there's like, mm-hmm. you know, those sort of messy, um, 
you know, messy kind of things uh, when you get into, like, who owns what rights and that kind of stuff. Um, whereas I think, like, yeah. something like Frey or, like, a different story, but, like, kind of set in the same universe could could do mm-hmm. better because cause Whedon would actually have, like, creative control. Um, but, you know, that's that's not necessarily uh yeah i don't know i feel like the the question comes up every like other year or so (laughs) and like it's always kind of like well if the right Mm -hmm. thing happened and you know the right whatever then you know maybe maybe we'll do it but it's hard to hard to say because there's no like uh yeah there's no clarity there Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I know that was kind of a long, long time through, um, discussion, but, uh, any other thoughts there on sort of the cultural impact? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I'm glad to have finally watched it all the way through and, you know, there were certain things that were in the zeitgeist that I got even before having watched it. But, um, you know, I'm going to be much more culturally literate now (laughs) to catch all the references, um, you know, more so than I had before. So for all the impact that it's had on what's out right now, it's, um, you know, it's exciting to, you know, realize that I've finally seen it all. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, we can do a real quick, like, where are they now? Or, or where have they been? <laughs> Maybe is a better way to put it. Um, for some of the main characters, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, so we mentioned, uh, you know, the crazy ones. Um, she had another show that was like a one season wonder, uh, called ringer. Um, my my sort of uh you know favorite thing that she's done since buffy is of course uh voicing seventh sister in star wars rebels um alongside her husband who uh voiced one of the main characters in the show um Mm -hmm. and uh but yeah a lot of i mean a lot of the a lot of the things that she's done um i mean you know some tv and movie stuff but um, a lot of what she's been doing more recently is um, creating a food company, <laughs> um, you know, where she's, uh, I think, I, I'm i not entirely sure what it is. I think it's like one of those, like, um, it's called Foodsters. I think it, it's like a subscription box type thing, but I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure. So she's been doing a lot with that and promoting a lot of that, um, less on the acting side. Um, Mm -hmm. Anthony Head. Well, of course we know some of what he's been doing because we've seen it in Doctor Who. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, the big thing that he's done since Buffy is Merlin, um, which I don't know if you've seen that Mm -hmm. show or not. Uh, only an episode or two. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like it. It's not, I don't think it's anywhere near, you know, Buffy thing, but it's kind of a fun, interesting show in its own right. Um, and and he of course is uh, a highlight in that. Um, so yeah, I mean beyond that, he's done sort of one-off things here and there. Um, 
and uh, apparently narrated, in addition to doing like Doctor Who, also narrated Doctor Who Confidential, which I, I'm not entirely sure what mm-hmm. that is. Is that like a... It's like one of those like behind the scenes okay. kind of things. So yeah. So, yeah. I think I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that kind of thing as well. Um, you know, seems to have steady work, but nothing like, you know, where he's like starring in it or whatever, other than, um, uh, you know, the, the Merlin show that, uh, was on for a few years. Um, mm-hmm. Alison Hannigan. Uh, so her big thing, of course, was uh, How I Met Your Mother, um, which mm-hmm. she which aired longer than Buffy and and you know lasted more than two hundred episodes. And I'm pretty sure she was in every one. Um, I mean, certainly mm-hmm. was one of the main characters uh, for that show. Um, also has has done. She was the host for. Um, Penn and Teller fool us. And then, um, you know, did some voice acting and, and some other things here and there. Um, so yeah, uh, just, uh, a, a bunch of stuff there that she's done. Oh, and of course, like the follow-ups to like the American pie, you know, like series of films mm-hmm. and stuff, which of course is like, like, I think the first one came out while she was on Buffy. Right. And so it was like, kind of like, she was mm-hmm. big for both of those things. Um, did a couple other like movies as well, but um, those are probably from a movie perspective. She's probably best known for like that American yeah. whatever series. Um, uh, so uh, uh, Nicholas Brendan, uh, nothing major. Um, he was in a show kitchen confidential, um, which was sort of like loosely based on the life of Anthony Bourdain. Um, but I think that only lasted like a season or like less than a season. I think it got cut pretty quickly. Um, it's been on, uh, a few other things. I know he did, um, he, he did some time on criminal minds, um, and that kind of thing. Um, has been less involved in acting and stuff recently. Um, definitely. I like, I think we've talked a little bit about some of the personal problems he's had with depression and alcoholism and, and sort of some of the arrests and other problems mm-hmm. that he's had. Um, I know like now he's sort of doing more like, uh, uh, appearance tours and that kind of thing than, than any actual work. Um, but, I mean, like he, you know, like other actors, he sort of has like things here and there that he does. He makes a lot of con appearances and that type of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So beyond that, I mean, those those are sort of the main uh, Scoobies. I mean, uh, we talked about Eliza Dushku going to um, like True Calling, and she's had a she's had some other shows um, where she's. Uh, you know, played some, some various and sundry, uh, things. Apparently she did something called Torchwood Web of Lies. Is that related to the Torchwood? Uh, I don't remember. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of her stuff has been, uh. Oh, apparently it is. It's animated. Okay. Interesting. So, um, so there you go. There's a connection there, but yeah, a lot of like her more. I don't think I even knew that that existed. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, I, I did not until I just looked at her Wikipedia page. Um, uh, but a lot of the things that she's done more recently are, have been like episodes here and there of stuff. Um, not a ton after uh, True Calling, except, of course, Dollhouse. Um, we can't forget that, where she starred um, in, in the two seasons of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there, there's a few others. James Marsters, obviously, also in Torchwood and Doctor Who-related stuff, um, showed up in uh, Star Wars The Clone Wars um, and uh, a few other things, um, but not, uh, not a ton. Um, most recently, though, he, uh, he is in the main cast of Runaways, um, which is a Marvel show. Mm-hmm on Hulu. Uh, interestingly, um, Joss Whedon wrote, uh, some of the story arc for the original comic. Um, like the, the second, I don't know if they call it season or whatever, um, for the comic that he finished, uh, he finished out like that second series or season or, or whatever it is they call. So it'll be interesting to see if, um, I I haven't read the comic, so I don't know the storyline, but like, there's a possibility there that, you know, James Marsters will be acting in a storyline that Joss Whedon wrote again. Um, if, mm-hmm. if they follow through, uh, you know, some of the, some of that stuff. Um, but again, I'm not familiar, so I don't know that I'll actually be able to pick it out if that's the case. Um, but yeah, other than that, a lot of sort of single episode or, or, you know, short recurring roles, um, in a lot of different things. Um, and of course, we'll see him again on Angel. I've already spoiled that for you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how far else we want to go. Um, you know, down the hole there. Uh, I, I will mention Tom Lank because I think he's really funny. Um, uh, you know, of course, has been doing some acting and stuff. Um, he was uh, in both Cabin in the Woods and Much Ado About Nothing, um, the Whedon versions of those. Uh, he, uh, you know, does, has done a lot of episodes. Stuff. The thing that he's doing now, um, which I don't know if you're aware of or seen, is um, on Instagram and, and I think Twitter as well. Um, he, he, for a few years now, or at least a couple years, he's been doing um, what he calls the link look, which is like dollar store versions of fashion from like what celebrities wear on red carpets. And like, Mm -hmm. that sounds really weird and cheesy and it is in a way, but like, it's also super hilarious. So I, you know, I know how much you like, you know, like Tim Gunn and, you know, maybe some of those types of Mm -hmm. things. You know, it might be worth checking out Tom Lank's um, Twitter or, or Instagram pages just because I think a lot of what he does is just really hilarious. And I don't know. I don't know if he's just been doing it for fun for like three years or whatever, however long he's been doing it, or if he's somehow getting paid, you know, to like do these things. Mm-hmm. But like just like really funny and creative and uh, hilarious. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, Michelle Trachtenberg um, has done a bunch of other, uh, you know, 
short episode stuff. Um, she was on Gossip Girl, I guess, for a while, and a show called Mercy, which I know is that like one of the hospital shows or something. I think maybe. I don't know. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, but like, yeah, again, most of most of what she's done has been sort of you know bit or or short recurring roles. Um, and and I think that's where we'll end it because that. Once we go beyond there, like, you kind of get into, uh... Oh, well, sorry. No, we're not going to end it there. We have to mention uh, D.B. Woodside, uh, who played Principal Wood. Robin Wood. Because, of course... Robin. Of course, he... We have to finish with Robin. He he, 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 sh- he shows up on, you know, one of my favorite shows, Suits, uh, as as the love interest for Gina Torres. So, I mean... You've got a mashing of the Whedon shows uh, there, mm-hmm. um, which is which is kind of fun. Um, anyway, all right. So that's all I'll mention <laughs> there, and we can definitely end it um, now because, like, we're really late and past our time. As as per usual, we have to we have to end the way we continue yeah i mean these have been like big episode weeks so like the last couple so i feel like we can forgive ourselves and and move on yes Um, yeah yep absolutely so like we'll be back to like watching things next week like it's exciting like like two things um in one week so two things at the same time so we're we're doing um we kind of mentioned it earlier uh we're going to be looking at class next um on the doctor who Mm -hmm. side of things and uh and obviously we'll we'll be continuing with angel so um yeah are are you like do you have any thoughts or predictions on where angel will go now that like the investigative team is in charge of wolfram and hart (laughs) um not anything specific no i anticipate a lot of morally compromised uh decisions <laughs> um hmm. i expect them to you know have to you know at least in the beginning figure out how when and if it's appropriate to use the resources that wolfram and hart have so generously donated um and what that does for their sense of like ethical responsibility that's my prediction. But I don't have, like, specific, like, plot predictions. Yeah, I'm, and I was just curious if you had any thoughts. But we, uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see how well that prediction holds true. Sounds good. See you then.